Chapter 3. I just find that very... Her, her boyfriend said, or guess he was her fiance, he said, she could be like, sometimes she would just kind of vanish for a day or two, and you'd I'd, I'd ask her where she'd gone, she wouldn't say. And uh, she could be kind of secretive. I don't know, but she said she was very sweet. And you think, was she trying to do an investigation on her own and ran into... I mean, in the case like that, it's possible. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to investigate criminality at the bank, you run into somebody who has nothing to do with Mary Little but just has secrets and kills you. I mean, that, that could certainly be the case. But it was odd that it was never solved. I mean, they, they looked at a couple of guys, and there are always, and it's sad to say, but there are always, when a woman gets killed or anybody gets killed, there are a lot of people around who could have done it. You'll find there are just a lot of people who are capable of doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot, I mean, a fair number. You can find people who are capable if they happen to be in that situation. From 11alive.com, Tegna Media, and the Gone Cold series, I'm Jessica Knoll. This is Five Roses. Diane Shields was 22, newly engaged, and took zero crap from anyone. At least that's what her family says. She also wasn't shy when it came to talking about Mary's disappearance among co-workers. She actually took Mary's spot at CNS Bank and her roommates say that from time to time, she too would vanish, and they didn't know where she would go, possibly doing her own investigating. I mean, it was the talk of the town, still. Some believe, like Jardine Dyer, it's that sleuthing that may have gotten her killed. She was living a dangerous life. He said, I think Diane is the nicest person as she was living kind of a dangerous life. It's hard to know what she was up to. Mm-hmm. But I think she, but she told her friend that she was working the case and the police knew about it. Now, did somebody, I don't know. So she was, you know, Diane was not, uh, I guess Diane was wanting to get married. I don't know if Diane wanted to have a career. She was not a, uh, she went to a little secretarial school in Alabama. Pat and I went there. This is even, in 2002, it was a very small place. And apparently she was not, uh, she was well-liked, she was very pretty, she was, uh, everybody liked her. But I think she was eventually let go at the bank because they didn't, they didn't think she was really pulling her load there. And what Rackley said, the police told me they solved that case. Uh, that they, they solved it, but they, they, they couldn't re- arrest the man. And maybe that's what police told him because he didn't know anything about her case either. She was working for someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, she apparently, I don't know what that, what that was up to. She was a virgin, according to the medical examiner's report. And it's what her boyfriend said. She, she was waiting for marriage, but she was, she was hanging out with some fairly dicey characters. And I don't know... And she was, she told a friend she was investigating Mary Little's disappearance. And was that really true? Some of the cops, oh, I don't think so. As my mom described her, that if she could could help, she's not gonna back down, she's not gonna be afraid of these guys. The only thing my mom did did mention mention at one point is that she thought that there there was some connection to the bank, you know, to CNS Bank, that's what she said. Um, And 
I don't, I don't really have a solid theory on what was happening, but I think there was some sort of illegal activity, some sort of criminal activity that, um, that Mary knew about and then Diane knew about. Um, and, and they didn't want getting out. And I also question whether that's why there was so little um, press coverage at the time when she was killed. Is I don't know if it was the local authorities wanted to squash it or if you know people at CNS wanted to squash it. But I just feel like there was something happening there that she knew about. She just wouldn't take anything from anybody. She had someone's card, um, um, but I don't know if I don't know which was, and that she wasn't very shy about saying that she was trying to help find out what happened. Right? I mean, she wasn't being overly secretive about it um, and it may have ended up getting her killed. Kim Koppel is talking about her Aunt Diane whom she never had the chance to meet. She was what, 22? I mean, you took someone's whole life. And again, when you look at these pictures, these two, you know, smiling, happy girls and then a few years later one of them's gone snuffed out, right? I mean, you can't, you just, you can't do that, right? I mean, that's why it makes me angry. Kim flips through yearbooks, showing me black and white memories of Diane and Sandra as high school students with what they believe to be bright futures. So here's the one with my mom, Miss Senior Class, and Diane, Miss Freshman Class. I think that's really cool. Same page of the yearbook. And this is also the photo that just, it gets me. I mean, look at those faces, you know, those smiling, happy. Just think about what a happy time that had to be, you know? Yeah. God, we're both in the parade. We're both, you know, sisters. And, and it just, you can really kind of see it on their faces. But it's just, you know, I look at their faces and then they have, one of them's life is gonna be snuffed out if just a few years after this. Yeah, so it's hard. It just breaks my heart a little bit for these these two girls, you know? They had no idea what was coming. And I guess I'm, I'm obviously glad they had no idea what was coming, um, but yeah, it's just, it's just sad. Kim's mom was Sandra Fleming, Diane's sister. Diane lived with Sandra at the time she was killed in suburban East Point. Kim lives in Cary, North Carolina with her family, just outside Raleigh. Her mom, Sandra, died a few years ago from cancer. And Kim tells me Diane's death always weighed heavily on her, but she rarely liked to talk about it. So after Sandra died, Kim started some armchair investigating of her own. I don't know a whole lot um, because it was really, really, really difficult for my mom to talk about at all. You know, she would mention snippets here and there. Um, when I was little, I knew that she had a sister who had died. I didn't know what happened um, until I turned 16 and was going to be out driving on my own. She sat down and told me, you know, as much of the story as she could tell me, right? Because I think, and this is actually what she said, she's like, people think that these things can't happen to them, but they can. They can happen to you. You need to be careful. You need to, you know. So that was the first time I really understood what had happened to her. When my mom did describe her, she sounded like she was really kind of spunky, would stand up for herself, would, you know, was just kind of a strong personality in that way. She said that she was leaving work, that you know, Diane was leaving work, and she, she and my mom were living together at the time, um, and she didn't come home 
And and this part of the story is, I have to caveat, it's just based on my recollection, right? Because I've also read an awful lot about this in years. So based on my recollection, this is what she said. Um, she's like, she didn't come home from work that evening. Um, and after a while, I called the police, but she hadn't been gone for long enough for the police to do anything. So she said she reported her car missing because she thought maybe if they wouldn't look for the person, they would look for the, her car stolen. Maybe they would look for her car. Um, and then it, you probably know that, that they found her car and then they found her in the car. She didn't go into tremendous detail about what had, had happened. She just said she was leaving work, didn't make it home, found her dead in her car. The thought was that she either knew who killed her or someone was waiting in her car when she got in. That was my mom's impression anyway. Kim wants justice for her aunt and the final closure her mom never received. It's wanting to understand what happened and if there's any possibility of someone being held accountable, I want them held accountable. So. For your mom and for Diane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And for me, because it makes me mad. <laughs> I was gonna use different language, but <laughs> it makes me angry. Yeah, it, the way it, it changed the entire dynamic of our family. And I think personally, it was probably for greedy, selfish reasons. In May 1967, Diane is living in College Park with her sister, Sandra Fleming. She is set to marry Tommy Antle in June. The blue-eyed blonde is from Guntersville, Alabama. She attends Jacksonville State University in Alabama before moving to Atlanta to find work. After a short stint at the bank, she leaves and starts a new job with Associated Industries of Georgia, known as AIG. But before starting her new position at AIG, she temporarily takes over Mary's role at CNS Bank. Like any small town or any girl back in that era, my mother was one of them. My mother came to Atlanta in 1958 from growing up in a farming community. So Diane and Mary Shotwell Little, uh, you know, they came from smaller towns to come to Atlanta for the clerical work. You know, your bookkeepers, your, like my mother, when she came to work here in, in the late 50s, she went to work for Equifax. And uh, same way with Diane, going to work for CNS Bank, you know. And Mary Shaw, a little the same thing, you know. So it was very common for those girls that lived, because Atlanta was a big city. You know, my dad grew up in a farming community. And then he comes to work for General Motors. So, you know, and Ford Motor Company obviously was, you know, back then there was two GM plants in Atlanta. Uh, Ford Motor Company and, you know, bigger, big manufacturing companies. But that's the way these girls got to Atlanta back, mm -hmm. back then. East Point Police Deputy Chief Russell Popham, who started investigating Diane's case in 2003, remembers what that era was like for women. You were saying that a lot of women, especially in the 60s, that was, um, Atlanta was a big drive for women to come to because of the size of the city and that it was um, for clerical work. Can you go yeah, into that a little um, bit? Back in the back in the late 50s and 60s, as Atlanta grew, you know, there's numerous jobs, especially for women, uh, in the office work, uh, from clerical work to bookkeeping, that, that type of work. So it was a big draw for uh, single women, or even women that just recently married for to come here to Atlanta to work. Um, and 
you got to think of it age-wise, you know, it's, you know, early 20s was the majority of the women that were coming here during that era. In 1965, Diane starts working at the CNS Mitchell Street branch in East Point, just weeks after Mary's disappearance. She tells people she feels like she's being followed. She receives odd phone calls at home and work. She carries a gun. And she receives five anonymous roses. She even calls police in November 1965 when a man claiming to be a door-to-door salesman frightens her. Diane casually dates several men, including a handful from CNS Bank. In April, she lives with roommates Sandra Webb, Kay Chandler, Twyla Knack, and Mary's former roommate, Judy Brownlee. But in July, she meets Tommy after Judy goes on a date with him. On October 26, 1966, five roses are delivered to her desk where she's now working at AIG. There's no card. There's no delivery slip revealing who they're from. Her co-workers tell police that she's upset and throws the roses in the trash can. Diane's co-worker at AIG, Virginia Maynard, says Diane was scared, nervous even. Further, that there was a car always around her apartment following her. And she talked about Mary Shotwell Little a lot. On New Year's Eve, Tommy and Diane get engaged. Subsequently, there's a falling out between roommates after the engagement. So in March 1967, she moves in with her 24-year-old sister, Sandra Fleming, who's married to Tony Fleming. He's serving in Vietnam, but back in the States, Sandra is dating Tom Moffat. Her sister would later tell police that Diane and Kay got along pretty well until Diane told her she was getting married. According to her, Kay was angry and told her that she was too young to get married. Former roommate, Sandra Webb, tells police she and Diane feared their ex-roommate, Judy Brownlee, who seemed to get agitated whenever a roommate got engaged or married. Sandra Webb tells police when she went back to pick up a few things from the apartment, after moving out to get married herself, Judy threatened her. All of a sudden, I started hearing things falling and I opened the door. Judy was throwing things from the attic. I asked her why she was doing this because I was getting them out there as fast as I could. She said, maybe the same thing will happen to you that happened to Mary Little, end quote. Grad Goodson, Diane's high school sweetheart, tells police that Diane was living in fear. She told me when she moved in with the girl, she started receiving strange telephone calls and she went to the police about it. She said the police must have been watching her, and when they were satisfied she didn't have anything to do with the Mary Little case, she agreed to work with them. Because they seemed to think the roommate knew more than she was letting on. When she was telling me this, she was extremely nervous. She told me about getting calls from a man, but she never said what he said to her. She said she was scared because she felt like she was being followed all the time. She seemed to get the calls when she was alone and by herself. She did say that one night she received a call from this man and then the next day she received a bouquet of roses and this terrified her. She decided that she had had enough and was going to get out. She said she moved right after that. She said that after she moved, she didn't get any more phone calls and didn't have the feeling of being followed. Her ex-roommate, Judy Brownlee, tells police that in the fall of 66, Diane receives a phone call at AIG 
Susie, one of the secretaries, answers the phone. The man on the other line asks if Diane Shields works there and if she had worked at CNS. And did she have a roommate with red hair? When another coworker gets on the phone and asks who he is, he hangs up. Kay Chandler tells police that one Friday night before Diane was murdered, she received a phone call from the post office regarding a registered letter. At 8.15 p.m., the phone rings. Diane is in the bath, so Kay answers. A man says, Miss Shields? Kay tells him to wait a minute, and she tells Diane that there's an elderly man on the phone for her. Diane says to tell him that she'll call him back in 10 minutes, but before she can, 10 minutes later, the phone rings again. Diane answers. And the man on the other line tells her that he has a registered letter for her and wants to know if her address is 690 Westminster. She tells him no, it's 96. She tells him to drop the letter in the mail. He agrees and they hang up. The next morning, the phone rings at 10 a.m. Again, Kay answers the phone. It's the same man on the other line. He says, Miss Shields? Kay asks who he is and he says, Watley from the post office. She tells him she thought that they had straightened everything out last night. He doesn't respond. Kay tells him to drop the letter in the mail. He hangs up without another word. Kay calls the post office and they confirm that they do in fact have a Watley who works for the post office, but that he's employed downtown. Her friends and family also tell police that Diane was depressed. In fact, she takes an overdose of sleeping pills after breaking up with CNS bank co-worker Bob Bray. According to police files, her fiance says, quote, when I met Diane, she seemed to be rather depressed about life in general. As to the reason for the depression, I'm not exactly certain, but I believe it was because she had not much confidence in the people she was dating and not much to look forward to in the future. Diane did tell me after we were dating for a while that she had tried to commit suicide. I believe she said she used sleeping pills. Several weeks before she was murdered, she had written her Aunt Alma a letter saying she was so happy she felt like she'd been born all over again, and this was because of the wedding plans. End quote. On Friday, May 19th, 1967, Diane leaves work at AIG just after 5 o'clock. At 7.30, Jack and Martha Jane Mullinax later tell police that they see Diane's car with two men inside, but no Diane. At 8 o'clock, Peggy Tolbert goes to the laundromat in East Point. There are no cars parked alongside the building. Sometime between 8.10 and 9.30, Peggy looks out and sees Diane's car parked on the side of the building. Around midnight, a car much like Diane's is stolen from an apartment complex next to the laundromat on Cleveland Avenue. Deputy Police Chief Russell Popham takes me through Diane's case file and photos. Well, in the photos here, this was uh, this was a she actually died on May the 20th, 1967. So Friday, she she was coming home and her boyfriend was going to pick her up around seven. Well, she never made it. So he goes over to obviously pick her up, and the sister's like, "Well, I don't know where she's at. I thought she was already with you." So they got a little concerned. So since they was in College Park, they called College Park police and said, "Hey, you know, she hasn't came home yet." So back then. Um, even though we don't have the technology today, but they at least put it out on the radio. They broadcast it out. Um, you know, white female, Diane Shields missing. Uh, this, that, and the other. 
and then um, so Friday night drug into early Saturday morning so our police officers one of which was officer Henderson he, he was actually training somebody that night I can't remember his name but uh, this is at the intersection of Cleveland Avenue and Sylvan Road pretty pretty still a busy intersection today and back then it was a main so there was a grocery store there and there was a dry cleaners uh, the typical old-fashioned dry cleaners where you you know had to pull up and take your clothes so back then a cop's primary job was to check his businesses late at night you know because you want to look for a burglar so nothing would you know no nothing would be stolen so they had just got on duty a little after midnight and they were riding around and they saw this car they all they also knew the owners of the laundry and they knew that this car is not supposed to be there so as they get there they see something leaking out of the out of the back of the car and this is blood from Mm. Diane right here It's about 2.30 in the morning. Police get the keys out of the ignition and open the trunk. Inside her blue Super Sport Impala, crumpled next to boxes and a spare tire, officers discover Diane. She's folded like a gruesome, demented origami inside her own trunk, right next to a Betty Crocker's Dinner for Two cookbook. She becomes case file number 67-691. In your professional opinion, why would someone stuff her back into her own trunk as opposed to leaving her somewhere? I'm thinking somewhere? that uh, one of my opinions is is there was some kind of maybe the killer panicked, uh, and wherever he couldn't he couldn't leave her body where maybe he thought he was going to be seen. Maybe he didn't want to drive the car any around anymore, knowing that the police could possibly be looking for the car. You know, since she, you know, by this time she'd been missing. So there's a couple of different theories I have. Maybe panicked, stuck her in the back of the trunk here, and and then abandoned the car. Uh, and really, it's not a good place to abandon a car. That was another thing that that sort of jumped out at me because it, it was a busy intersection. Mm-hmm. You know, so at this time of the night, no matter what time he abandoned it, but somebody would see you. Fellow investigators John and Cheryl say the way she's found is very telling. It almost looks like, Diane almost looks like a mob hit. How so? Trunk of the car, it's her car, beaten unrecognizable but not sexually assaulted. So here's the deal. People are killed for three reasons. Revenge, sex, and money. That's it. And then there's a fourth one, which is batshit crazy, but you recognize that. So nothing was stolen from her. Her engagement ring was on, which is probably the most valuable thing she had. Her car wasn't stolen. So money's off the table. Okay, let's look at sex then. Because see, on the one hand, you think, okay, well, let's say it was a rapist. And he beat her and then was interrupted by somebody, you know what I mean, to get away. Again, he put that child in her own car and drove her with a dead body in the car Mm -hmm. from wherever he originally assaulted her. And we know it wasn't there because the way the blood was. So this, again, is somebody that is not afraid. And so he wasn't in a hurry. So again, if that was his motive, it would have been more clear. And it's just not. This was just a straight-up murder. So to me, that's why it looks like a mob hit. They often use the victim's own car. Yeah. They often use the trunk. It's often brutal to send that message. Retired investigator Bob Matthews still proudly wears his high school class ring, having recently celebrated his 50-year high school reunion. 
He grew up in East Point and remembers Diane's case vividly. I was in the 11th grade in 67. And uh, I can remember the night it happened, riding through the intersection there, Cleveland and Sylvan, which is like one block from where they found her car later that night, actually the next morning, 2.30. So I, that's always stuck with me that, you know, I rode by there and then sometime after that they found her there. East Point was Mayberry back then. You know, people did not lock their doors because they had no fear of burglaries or anything like that happening. I mean, there were some, but I mean, not like it is today. The, uh, it was just, you know, like a quiet little suburb of Atlanta. It was the first time something of that magnitude had happened. I mean, it just, people realized that they were vulnerable, that, you know, here's seemingly somebody that, you know, wasn't living a lifestyle that put them in any kind of danger. Uh, you know, just every day going about their business, going to work, you know, living their life, and something happens. You know, something horrible happens, which means it could happen to anybody. In 1973, he joined the East Point Police Force himself and started investigating Diane's case. Even after retirement, the 67-year-old still clings to hope for justice. That's why he joined the task force, looking to revive Diane and Mary's cold cases. Is lost because of that commercial. We sit inside the East Point Police Station in an adjoining conference room to Deputy Chief Russell Popham's office. One by one, he takes me through photos from the crime scene. You know, there again, you you see you know, the condition of the body, you know, being forced down in there, you know, why do that? Right. Uh, you know, it just makes you wonder. And you see the blood that was dripping out. It's one of these deals where there was nothing obvious about why someone would do this to her. You know, she wasn't in a bad part of town where somebody might try to rob her you know, that we know of. One in, in areas that, that something like that would happen. Where she lived down in College Park was a nice, you know, quiet little area. You know, people drove home every day from Atlanta, come to Atlanta and College Park and Hapeville, and nothing ever happened to them, you know. But here's this oddity that, you know, she turns up dead. It's just, you have to wonder, you know, there's a reason why. Diane had been killed by strangulation, either from a phone cord or a Venetian blind cord. She had lacerations and bruises on her head. Her ear was severely torn, indicating that she put up one hell of a fight. And then, like I say, they stuffed some articles down her throat after, after she was murdered, so. Why would someone do that? Usually, something of that nature, it would be kind of personal. You know, they had rage against this, the victim. You know, they wanted to, you know, inflict even more indignation on them, you know, than just plain killing them. There's also the possibility, though, that she wasn't killed there, she was killed somewhere else. That there's actually another crime scene somewhere else we don't, we never knew where. 
and that might have been done trying to keep her quiet, you know, because obviously if she realized what was happening, she probably would have tried to put up a fight, you know, try to holler and scream, whatever. But there's a certain sadistic element to doing that. 99% of the people, you know, kill somebody don't go to that extent. You know, that's just something added to it for whatever reason. You know, if it was personal, you know, they had some hatred for her, possible. It would be kind of unusual other than maybe trying to keep her quiet for just not knowing who she was doing it. I don't know, without knowing who the killer was and what their what their reason was, you know, it's just conjecture. You know, you just have to kind of look at the pieces and try to figure out, you know, what happened. I mean, it was different than your average murder. You know, there's just more to it. You know, why put her in the trunk of the car? Could just left her in the car. Cause I mean, she was gonna be found. You know, why, why go to that trouble? Back to the scene. It's Saturday, May 20th, 1967. East Point investigator J.E. Hendricks arrives on the scene as investigators lift fingerprints off the car. He peers into the now open trunk and observes a folded up Diane. She's still wearing her engagement ring and is fully clothed in an olive green jumper dress and white top with olive green trim. There's a blood soaked piece of cloth protruding from her mouth. He takes her temperature, 89 degrees. With that, he determines that she's been dead for about four hours. So where had Diane been for the hours after she left work and didn't return home before she was killed? Bob takes me back to where Diane's car was discovered, but it looks nothing like it did in 1967. We make our way to what is now an overgrown, fenced-in sidewalk that leads to nowhere, except to what appears to be a sinkhole. No loitering. Yeah, right. No littering, excuse me. Well, that makes a little more sense. Yeah, it is just a little sidewalk back here. This is approximately the location where Diane Shields' car was found on May 20th, about 2.30 in the morning by one of our patrol units checking stores. There used to be a driveway here that went around the building. This was a laundromat and had a drive-up window here on the side of the building. Her car was down by, the, by that window facing out, like it had come from the direction back there. The driveway circled on around. There was a driveway going in the apartments that used to be behind here where the 24-hour Walmart is now. Of course, obviously nobody was around it at the time. And it curved on around. There was a second driveway going up into the apartments. So like I say, this is just kind of like a street. It was pretty wide. And uh, there was a culvert over here that, that ran around behind there for water runoff and everything. But evidently, it has been overgrown. So none but, of this vegetation was here? Nope. Like I say, this was all cleared out. It was just a regular driveway going around the building. And uh, like I say, her car was found, say, 50, 60 feet down, facing out, like it's coming out this way. How many times have you been to this location just to investigate or do? Oh, I mean, as a patrolman, and I mean, thousands and thousands of times, I mean... We pretty much checking stores is a big thing, like on the morning watch. You know, your responsibility on your beach is to make sure nobody's break, broken into any, any of the businesses and they didn't leave any open doors. You know, you can check to make sure the doors are locked and 
if you find one open, you get the owner to come down and lock it and whatever. And that, that kind of gets gets the officers to, you know, check the stores if, if they're looking for open doors and stuff. And of course, obviously looking for burglaries too, or burglars if you can catch them in the building. But like I say, this is an open driveway where you drive all the way around. And uh, there's a lot of traffic here. There's Cleveland Avenue behind us goes straight to Metropolitan Boulevard now. It used to be Stewart Avenue. And keep on going, you can come back to 75. And uh, of course, the top of the hill is going into Atlanta, Atlanta city limits. And then Sylvan Road continues running north, goes into Atlanta there on the other side of 166, and runs south back into Central Avenue there, going into Hapeville. So. Easy would it be for someone to go from this spot to Atlanta or jump on 75 or you know to, to make a very, getaway? Very easy. I mean, it'd be out of here in 30 seconds. It wouldn't take you long if you were looking to, to get away from this area. You'd be gone because, like I say, you had several different ways to go. You can go that way, you know, catch up, you know, down by the airport, get on the expressway down there, get on 85, or like I say, you can, uh, cross Metropolitan Boulevard and. You know, the next thing you come to is it's 75 going south. You go back north, you can get on 166, take you back 7585, or you can go west to 285. So, yeah, you'd be gone in nothing flat. And not just gone from the city, I mean, gone from the state even because well, I mean, we're so connected. Yeah, well, like I say, yeah, I mean, you can go anywhere from there. So, I mean, it's not like you're driving down two-lane road going somewhere. I mean, there's access to, you know, going anywhere you want to go and pretty quickly. Where, where was the car related to where we are? Probably, say, about maybe 60 feet down. Uh, like I said, it used to be a, a drive-up window there for the laundromat, and it was down by it, facing out, facing back this way, and just parked just a little ways away from the building, you know, facing back this way. This case has haunted you? Oh, definitely. You know, a lot of cases do, especially the unsolved ones. We see the worst of people, you know, always you know dealing with deceased people sometimes the family members want to see them and a lot of times they really don't because that's the last thing they're going to remember you know if it's unfortunate circumstances and i always try to tell them you know you really don't want to you know you need to remember them the last time you saw them and, and you know not like this you know because it'll it'll be we definitely forever then i'm sure there's a lot of them i don't remember but there's a lot of them i do and will always remember. I'll take them to my grave. Back in 1967, this was a driveway going around the building. Obviously now, uh, due to the fact that apartments are no longer there, this is not a drive going around the building or into the apartments, and it's overgrown. Uh, nothing but bushes and trees now. When I retired 16 years ago, this wasn't here. Things change quickly. What is here today is gone tomorrow. Yeah. One thing about it, that intersection out there has always been well lit. So, it, you know, even nighttime, there's a fair amount. I mean, it wasn't dark. It'd be darker on this side of the building, but it was still fair, fairly lit up. And like I say, there's a lot of traffic through here. I can remember that night going this way, going across the intersection, probably about 10, 30, 11 or something like that that night. And most likely she was sitting here. What do you think happened to Diane? One of two things. Well, either she ran across the wrong person at the wrong time. You have to keep in mind, even back then there were serial killers. 
you know, I don't know what the exact number is now. Back when I was still working 16 years ago, the FBI said that in any given day, there's like 60 serial killers roaming the United States. We've had several known ones come through East Point that we have dealt with. Like I say, with, with Diane Shields, there was a certain amount of sadism probably involved in her murder. I mean, because it was, it was more vicious than it had to be. So if it was personal, you know, obviously it was somebody she knew that, you know, she probably wouldn't have had any fear of unless she was already scared of them. And if she was, she wasn't telling anybody that she was having any real particular problems with anybody. Of course, obviously, dating, you know, even back then, you'd run across screwballs, you know, and sometimes they're hard to get rid of. But uh, like I say, she seemed to be in a fairly stable relationship. So you figure one thing is she just ran across the wrong person at the wrong time. Then there's the possibility that she ran across the person that was actually looking for her, that there was a reason why they did this. It's the big question, you know, you, 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 when you look at cases like this, the so-called whodunits, you know, you, you, you try to look and see why it was done, you know, and then who, you know, who had the, the ability to do something like this. Everybody pretty much that she was in contact with, whether she dated them or worked with them or whatever, was interviewed and no reason was found for them to be, you know, involved in anything like this. None of them appeared to ever do anything like this again. Like I say, most likely, the person that did this, this wasn't his first rodeo. We possibly have evidence that might prove one way or the other who, who the person you know involved is. It's just that it's never been useful. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say what it is, but <laughs> you can deduce that if we ever find the right person, we might be able to prove it. And and there's a huge difference between between uh, knowing who did it and being able to prosecute. Exactly, and and that that gets to you though, because there's some solace if if you know who did it anyway. You know, it's in an imperfect world, you can't always prove it. There's been discussion about possible mob hit or Dixie Mafia affiliation to one or both of these crimes. What is your take on, on that? That's always something you look at. You know, there again, going back to the, to the chop shops and all, Dixie Mafia involved in all kinds of things like that. Um, How prevalent was the Dixie Mafia in Atlanta and East Point at that time? We had some members in East Point. Obviously, there would have to be some connection with, with their dealings, you know, for them to be involved in it. They're not just going to, you know, abduct somebody on the street or whatever and do something like this. There again, either one of these ladies, you know, might have run across information that they weren't supposed to know about. Possibly at the bank? People talk. You, you never know. Obviously, there's a reason why. You know, 50 years later, we still don't know why. The Dixie Mafia. It lingers in the back of John Fedak's mind, too. You brought up Dixie Mafia. Yes. Um, do you think that they were involved in at least Diane Shields because of how she, 
Our friends. How she was um, killed, stuffed in a trunk, stuff shoved down her you yep. know mouth and yep. throat. Yep. Um, and what else? What wasn't she? She wasn't sexually assaulted. Bingo. Yeah. The Dixie Mafia's calling card was when when if somebody was a rat or uh, or assumed to be a rat, they were murdered. Items were stuffed down their throat, and they were thrown in the back of a car, and the car typically was parked at the Atlanta airport because there was so much construction. They didn't care if it was found. The Dixie Mafia was almost worked at operated with impunity. They were so big, they were powerful, they, they, and they were obviously stone-cold killers, they didn't care. Um, but there, was, there were many, I don't know, two or 62, there were many homicides in that late 50s, 60s, early 70s associated with that. The violence of the stuffing down was a phallic, I beg your pardon, phallic substitution and the vi and and you have you seen Diane's photographs yeah. I mean I just want to cry I just god damn it makes me mad but uh, but but to, to, to see that I mean this frenzy took over with this guy or woman there's one for you or or whatever but this frenzy of, of punishing her plus and I've asked everybody this and some people way she was laid in the car almost ritualistic to me you look at those photographs she wasn't stuffed in head first and then kicked she's face up and if I'm picking whoever whoever picked she's 123 pounds I think that's dead weight that's like 200 pounds so whoever got here in the, the, she's gonna go head first and then they're just gonna push her in there to they me wanted someone to find her exactly in that position with that her to me up. to me yes to me yes so this frenzy this 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 horrible punishing and then oh my god I've got to be gentle I've got to I've got to you know do that to me that's what the photographs say to me after I look at them and I put them away for a so month the Dixie Mafia. That was their calling card. One of the detectives that worked on it, that was uh, one of uh, Jack Perry's partners, or one of his pretty good detectives, um, was convinced at the end uh, the Dixie Mafia certainly did Diane Shields. May have had something to do with Mary, but certainly did Diane Shields. And he, and he had photographs of two or 16, I don't remember how many homicides, dead body, dead body, looks the same, stuff down the throat, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Was there a connection between the Dixie Mafia and CNS Bank? There was a connection between CNS Bank and quite a few heavy hitters in Atlanta. The, the, the CNS Bank at the time, and I think you'll read in the reports, they were the bank. They were the go-go guys. I mean, they were, I think they uh, helped finance and floated the loans and the bonds for Atlanta Stadium. I mean, so they were very, very plugged in. So um, would the CNS Bank have to do that? I, you know, I'm not going there. You know, you know, I'm, but I will tell you that the Dixie Mafia was for hire, and they did murder uh, people, just pure business, dollars and cents, and that was their calling card. She was telling people, and 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 uh, and acting like a, a detective. She had a business card. They think it was Jack Perry's, and Jack. And the assumption was Jack just said, "Here, if you ever know anything, you're here." To do. And so she's walking around saying, "You know, I work for the Atlanta police now, and you want you want to tell I'm me what's going into on?" Mary's I'm looking. I'm looking. And then poor girl is murdered to shut up. She doesn't know any more than she's than not I even do. She's working at the bank anymore. And told people, uh, um, out of had her name lost in some in Guthersville, Alabama, where where Diane was from. Um, told some people, I've 
I've got some big news for you in just a couple of days. I've got something really big. And she did, and from what everybody can piece together, she knew less than, than my, da my dog Wilma. I mean, knew nothing about that it. That didn't matter. No, but, she, but wow. no. And she had stuff yes. stuffed down her throat. You like, shut you're up. you not gonna talk, right, yeah. And anyone else who thinks they might, this is what'll happen. This is wow. what'll happen. Five Roses is produced, narrated, and reported by Jessica Knoll. Joe Flaccari co-produced Five Roses. Philip Kish is the digital director. Aaron Peterson is the executive producer. Brendan Keefe is our TV investigator. Joshua Coates created the graphic. And special thanks to Annie Campbell. Five Roses is produced for WXIA-TV, 11alive.com, and Tegna Media, as part of our ongoing digital series, Gone Cold. We are on Twitter and Instagram as Gone Cold. And we have a Facebook page you can join and discuss the podcast and other cold cases. You can read more cold case stories and listen to our upcoming monthly podcast by visiting 11alive.com backslash gone cold. <laughs>